6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 40 and 41. When you get into this area, for people who have really studied the dinosaurs, you'll discover that they're not extinct. There's reports continually. We could go through two hours of slides of pictures and newspaper articles and articles out of Scientific American and other journals over the years of sightings by reputable people, groups of people seeing these creatures in places, sightings of dinosaur-like creatures all over the world, especially in places like the uh, uh, Lekuyala uh, uh, Swamp, which is uh, Zaire, Congo area, 55,000 square miles. That's a huge zone in the middle of Africa. And there's constantly uh, reports there of creatures that uh, you and I would describe as prehistoric. And if you would like, uh, I was originally going to try to show some of those slides, except uh, for lots of reasons I didn't want to derail the primary study, so I didn't bring the, the, uh, the, the equipment. But if you'd like, if you're interested in this area at all, I encourage you to contact Kent Hovind at uh, Creation Science Evangelism in Pensacola, Florida. His phone number is 850, area code, 479-3466. He also has a website called drdino.com. <laughs> and he's one of the most humorous, well-informed, Fun guy. He's been a science, t- a high school science teacher for 15 years, but he goes. He's in demand all over the world because he's he's is the expert. But he has hundreds of pictures of these things that are fun. I'll just use one example. Do you realize in 1977, a group of Japanese Japanese fishermen pulled up from 900 feet below the body of a giant. Pleosaur-like creature. It was 32 feet long and weighed 900 pounds. It was dead, obviously. It's just a carcass. It's almost bigger than the boat they had. So as they picked it up, they took lots of pictures and all of that, but what could they do with it? They ended up, ultimately, after recording it and taking samples and all that, they put it back. But those pictures are available. And uh, we'll put the pictures in the notes that accompany these tapes. But uh, we'll put a number of the pictures in, in, in the notes that will be with the tapes. But what you and I are going to do now, let's just let the text speak to us. Let's set aside our prejudices and let's hear what the text says in, as, as God continues talking about this. He says, Canst thou, speaking to Job, canst thou draw the Leviathan with, out with a hook? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? In other words, can you catch this thing? Can you tame it? Can you make a pet out of it? Hardly. Wilt thou play with him? Verse 5. Play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons? 
or his head with fish spears? See, this guy isn't catchable. This isn't something you mess around with. You go out there and catch one with a boat, you know. Lay thy hand upon him and remember the battle. Do no more. <laughs> Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whoever is under the whole of heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as a close seal. One is so near the other that no air can come between them. Boy, that's close. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. That's neither a crocodile nor a whale, incidentally. Not descriptive at all. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Well, let's just pause. It's clear that whether Leviathan is, he was impregnable, and uh, totally uh, human efforts were insufficient to slay or capture him. And by the way, that can't be a zoo or a crocodile. You know why? Because the zoos are full of them. In fact, hunting them is so successful, they're, ex they're considered uh, endangered species. This character ain't endangered in the traditional sense. Now, just about the time you say, gee, that's pretty good. That must be a dinosaur. I hear you. Check. That's pretty good. Then we get to verses 19, 20, and 21, and we get a curveball thrown here. Out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. You've got to be kidding. The Bible talks about fire-breathing dinosaurs. Certainly this is mythology. Certainly this is just poetic license. Not so. Not so. Let me tell you something that most people don't know about dinosaurs, unless you really get into it and talk about the scientists that are dealing with them. They're discovering dinosaur fossils that have been uh, they've been excavated. They, some that they found they show a large protuberance with an internal cavity in the top of the head, and uh, it's been suggested we don't know what it was for, but we can only guess that it might have served as a mixing chamber for combustible gases that would ignite when exhaled in the presence of oxygen. Say, gee, Chuck, that's pretty conjectured. No, there are beetles that do that. There is an interesting creature you should be aware of. You can look it up in any encyclopedia. There's a, a type of ground beetle, Brachinus in North America it's called, and it's Ferocifus uh, in Africa and Asia. The same creature, just labeled differently. It's of the family of the Caribidae, which is uh, basically the ground beetles. It's well known because it has an internal cavity in which these creatures can secrete a defensive fluid which when expelled from its posterior, uh, at, the, at the posterior end of the abdomen, it volatizes explosively into a gas <laughs> at high temperature when it comes in contact with the air. It obviously surprises its, any predators around. It's an explosion. And then there's a smoke cloud that occurs which allows the beetle to, to escape given an opportunity to escape from his enemies. 
It's called the bombardier beetle. And, uh, but it's very interesting because in nature itself, it's got this mechanism by which it mixes. I forgot, I, I couldn't find my diagram in time. I'm going to try to still find it before the notes are published. I forget whether it's one or two, but I think there's two chemicals that get mixed in the chamber, and then when it hits the air, it explodes. It causes a loud pop, an explosion, and there's a cloud of smoke in which the, it so startles the predators that it gives the beetle a chance to escape. Bombardier beetle. And so, um, that, now what, what's so provocative here, suddenly, as we begin to realize there are these kinds of creatures in nature, as we begin to discover these dinosaurs, see what we're all victims of are the, the collective conjectures of museums and others where they take these bones and try to create what they probably looked like. But a lot of that is conjecture laid upon conjecture. So we, the truth of the matter is we're not that sure about a lot of it. And they're discovering that there are this, these chambers and this protuberance of the head might be, they don't know what it's called, might be uh, some apparatus. Now, what's interesting is we stand back now and take a look at history. Um, we uh, uh, Let's talk a little bit about dra- dragons throughout history. The word dragon comes from the Greek, uh, the Greek Dracon, which is a term that they used they used to use for any large serpent. That's what the Greek term originally meant. The term dinosaur is derived from the Greek. It means terrible lizard, and it refers to, of course, its large size. Now, the notion that dinosaurs were extinct millions of years ago is a fiction that's been promoted. That certainly doesn't explain the prevalence of dragons throughout literature of all cultures throughout history. And uh, the, uh, the dragon of uh, mythology, whatever shape it might have be, was essentially a serpent with a couple of legs. Two, you know, four legs, uh, even though it was a serpent, it had four legs, typically. In the Middle East, a serpent or dragon was symbolic of evil. Uh, the Egyptian god Apepi was a gr- giant serpent in the world of darkness by, in terms of their mythology. The Greeks and the Romans also at times conceived of Draconites, Dracontis, if you will, of, as, uh, as ben- beneficial powers dwelling in the inner parts of the earth. That was their con- conception. Their protection, uh, their protective, their uh, protective uh, features and uh, their terror-inspiring qualities caused them to be adapted as emblems on shields and such in war. The idea of a dragon, they, they adopted that on, sh- on, on shields and on ships and so forth. They, remember the ship, some of the ships had a, had a, a prow a, on the bow. They had a, 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 a dragon's head and so forth. The Chaldean dragon, Tiamat, had four legs and a scaly body and wings. Among the most prevalent of, of the dragon legends, of course, is China. The Chinese dragon, called a Lung, is, was a majestic mythological beast that dwelt in rivers, lakes, oceans, and roamed the skies. They were generally depicted as four-legged animals with scales, a snake-like body, horns, claws, and a large demonic eyes. And they're generally regarded as a source of power, and they're commonly adopted as imperial emblems. The ancient Chinese cosmogonists had, uh, uh, defined four different types. Tian Lung, which was the celestial dragon, he guarded the heavenly dwellings of the gods. The Fu Tsang Lung, which was the dragon of the hidden treasure and Ti Lung, the earth dragon, who controls the waterways. And here's the interesting one. The Shen Lung, which was the spiritual dragon who controls the winds and the rain. What's interesting, both the Chinese and the Japanese uh, dragons usually were usually wingless, 
but were also regarded as being capable of, change their, of changing their size at will, even to the point of becoming invisible. But here's the kick that what I was going to get at. What's remarkable is they were referred to as the power of the air. And those of you who know your Bible, that ties together very nicely in terms of the, who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. And it's interesting, as you get the book of Revelation, you got the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. But the climax of that whole logarithmic increase of judgment, the last one, the seventh bowl, is poured out what? On the air. Because he's the prince of the power of the air. It's all, all those last are focused right on, this, on Satan's throne. While many of these references uh, to the Leviathan will turn out if you examine closely, uh, uh, could not apply to any animal, even this one. It's possible that what God is alluding to here, metaphorically, is Satan himself. Now let's explain. You know, see, the Leviathan itself was a real animal and not a mythical creature. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, this is clearly asserted in Psalm 104, verse 25, in addition to this passage in Job. God made the Leviathan. He was a literal, real animal on the one hand. In fact, let's go on verse 22. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned unto joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of nether millstone. And he raised up himself, the mighty are afraid. When he, when he raised up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, or the habergon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon his mire, upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like. Who is made without fear? He beholdeth the high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Wow. At this point, we begin to realize, wait a minute. He is what? He is the king over all the children of pride. See, all along now, if we re-examine this passage, we'll discover that God has been interleaving in the, dis- in the description of the literal animal, description of this giant sea creature. He's interweaving a description of Satan himself. There are two other places in the Scripture where God deals in depth with Satan. But in both cases, what he's doing, he uses a local situation as the mechanism to describe the broader situation. We find that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And uh, I think we have time just to take a quick look at that. Turn to Isaiah uh, 14. It's, a cl- it's one of the classic passages. And it's, it's, uh, it, this is advanced stuff because many people miss this unless they really understand what's happening. Because in Isaiah 14, st- from um, chapter, well, the first part of the chapter, Isaiah is talking about the fallen king of Babylon. And uh, from, from 9 to 11, it's very clear he's talking about the literal king of Babylon. But when you get to verse 12, suddenly the, the uh, uh, expression shifts gears. In verse 12, God is saying through Isaiah, he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? 
when you encounter that in the chapter, it's almost like a change of subject. God's been talking about this king of Babylon, but now he's shifting to the power that's behind this king. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? Son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, who didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Wow. Many people take that phrase to refer to Satan's attempt to be God. No, he's attempting to be like a God. And I believe Satan saw Adam when he was created as a rival, a potential rival. And that's why he plotted against him. But in any case, uh, verse 10, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and shall consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who did shake the kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness, and destroyed its cities, who opened not the house of his prisoners? And so forth. Very interesting passage, Isaiah 14. There's a similar passage. Obviously, it's a, it's a glimpse into the career of Satan. But there's another passage in Ezekiel. It's, tw- it's not 14, it's 28. In other words, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It's easy to remember. There are multiples of each other, both multiples of seven. Here again, we have a situation where God, through Ezekiel, is talking against the king of Tyre. When you get to verse... 11 and following, there's a shift of subjects. It's, it's this, he's still focusing on the king of Tyre, except it's as if he's shifting gears. He re, he's reaching in behind the power of the king of Tyre. And, he's, and he says to Ezekiel, the son of man, verse 12, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's awkward Hebrew. In other words, he is the sum, the peak of beauty. He is, he is the ultimate answer, is what it's saying. That's strange, because he's, you know, he's, he, you seal up the sum. You're full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden. Now, wait a minute. The king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. It's a throwback into Genesis chapter 3. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy timbrels and thy flutes was prepared in the day that thou was created. It's a created being we're talking about here. Now here's the key verse, verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub. There are angels, there are super angels. A cherub is the top of the heap. He is, he was, the anointed cherub that covereth. That's a way of clumsy translation. He is the, he's a cherub, not just an angel, he's a cherub. But he's the one that was appointed to be in charge of all the rest of them. That's what that really implies. Who is that? That was Satan before he fell. Thou was the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in the ways from the in thy way. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. The untils in the Bible are worth making a catalog of. Whenever you've seen until, that's typically a milestone of some kind. He was perfect in the, in, from the day he was created until, oh boy, iniquity is found. That's where sin began, was in his heart, in his pride. 
That's why God hates pride, because it was through pride that Satan fell, and it was through pride that all the rest, all earth's evils derive from. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee profane, uh, as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of uh, thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. By the iniquity of thy merchandise, therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it will devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. That's obviously looking way, way ahead. I mention these two places because I think they're uh, analogous to what we're encountering in Job. Because I think Job is, ta- uh, I think God is talking indeed about a literal Leviathan on the one hand, and yet the language reaches beyond that. So one of the things you want to be sensitive to, you have to come to your own conclusions about this, is that it seems to be much more in view here than simply an earthly creature. There may be, the real point here is a spiritual application. So let's step back. Uh, we look at these creatures. Some, you know, some people think these creatures are mythical and legendary, like the unicorn or like dragons. But while they may have actually been real cre- uh, creatures, they also may be being used here symbolically about that which is invisible and supernatural. And as I say, Scripture has many examples of this all through Scripture. We looked at uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, but we find the same thing in Daniel. We find the same thing in Zechariah. We find the same thing in the Revelation. They're all full of examples of beasts that rise up um, and out of the sea or out of the earth that signify far more than they just creature. There's something much, they're, they, they're, they're uh, idiomatic of something much larger, movements or leaders, invisible or supernatural powers. An example of this occurs in Isaiah 27, verse 1. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, we have the Leviathan talked about. In, the, in that day, the Lord, verse, Isaiah 27, verse 1, in that day the Lord, with his sore and great strong sword, shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent, even Leviathan that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. What's he talking about? He's not just talking about the last of the dinosaurs. He's using that idiomatically of something far deeper. The Hebrew names in all these things are very significant. The word behemoth for the land animal is actually the plural for beasts. And it, and it thus suggests maybe all the beasts lumped together, although here clearly the text is, is being very specific. Probably a brachiosaurus is, is the, the opinion of most experts, uh, idiomatic, if you will, of what we commonly call dinosaurs. The Leviathan, the term actually in the Hebrew means the folded one. The folded one. Or I might say the twisted one, okay? Um, one that's a twisted or folded serpent. He's called the, the dragon of the sea in Isaiah. Now, we notice here in Job, we have something very interesting going on. We have God speaking of two super animals. One of the land, one of the sea, right? When you get to Revelation 13, there are two beasts that rise. One from the earth and one from the sea. I'll actually put the other around. The first one comes out of the sea and the second one comes from the earth. 
But behind, and there clearly in the book of Revelation, they are governments or leaders or, or, or actually personages leading large governments and so forth. But behind each of these is also identified in the chapter just prior, the one that's really behind him. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, you may want to look that up, it speaks of that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And we know from that passage there was a third of them that went, he got cast out with him. In the next verse, though, it also identifies Satan with his main title. What does the word Satan really mean? He's the accuser of our brethren. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. Satan has been accusing Job in this book, and Satan right now is accusing us before the throne. He is our accuser. That's what the word really means. You know, it really alarms me when I see Christian leadership attack other Christian leaders, especially in public. There is a procedure in the Scripture in Matthew 18 that if you have something odd against a brother, you go to him in private first. If that doesn't go, you go to him in private with, with an elder with you. If that doesn't work, you go to his board. You don't parade this out in public. That dishonors God. That's called accusing the brethren. Where does that doctrine come from? From Satan. Exactly right. It really disturbs me to see some who make their career publicly attacking other members of the body. Now, it's a very valid ministry to take a false teaching that's been published and compare it to the Bible and show how it's non-biblical. Walter Martin and others, there have been some great men in the past that have been skilled at that, but they always focused on what was taught by what was published and what the Bible says. It wasn't made interpersonal. Never attacked an individual. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music